Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Carefree and Black Diaries podcast. My name is Shakira and I am the host here. This month is October, which means that it is Blacktober here on the podcast. During the month of October, I like to do this thing called Blacktober because we talk about Black issues, Black history, um, Black little-known facts, and we just dive deeper into Black people. So that is what Blacktober is before we get deep into this episode. First of all, if you are subscribed, that means that you are already a part of our Carefree family. And for that, I say thank you. Thank you for tuning in to a new episode. You are greatly appreciated. Now, if you are new here and you're not quite sure what happens over here, we are the Carefree and Black Diaries podcast where we talk about news, politics, pop culture, music, TV, and so much more. So we welcome you to go ahead and subscribe. If you subscribe, you'll be notified every single time we post a new episode, which is every Tuesday at 9 a.m. With that being said, let's head straight into our Carefree Updates. If you are looking for something new to watch on TV, I know I was because it's at that weird like stage in the year where a lot of shows are ending or have ended and then the new shows aren't coming on for like another month or maybe three weeks. So I'm in that like limbo area, like a lot of people, and I'm like, oh, there is nothing to watch on TV. And I have been seeing a lot of advertisement um, and buzz about a show called Reasonable Doubt. I'm not going to lie. At first, I was like, mm, I may give it a try, but probably not. And it just happened to be like a Saturday. And I was like, let me just see what it's about. So I turned to Hulu or clicked Hulu on the TV and ended up falling in love with it. Like within the first four minutes, one, the music sold me. As soon as I heard Ace Hood within like the first few minutes of the show, I was like, oh, They've won a viewer for life. Like, as long as the show is on, I will be watching. The soundtrack is amazing. Whoever the music supervisor is deserves a raise. I was tweeting this the other day. I was like, who is the music supervisor? And give that person a raise. Because the music is just so in sync with the show. And I love that. And I also love, you know, it doesn't hurt when you're familiar with the music on a TV show. So whatever their music budget is they they have the budget they have the budget because you hear songs that are familiar to you and even those that aren't familiar I was like oh I've never heard this like let me go add this to Spotify so I can listen to it later and along with that I just love the nuance of the show it is a black show about a lawyer um and her dynamic within her family, with her husband, with her children, amongst her friend group, um, with her mom and her mom's new husband I don't want to give you all too much because I want you to actually go watch the show but I love the nuance in it I love the clothing I love the music I love the the it's just it's hard to explain but you know when something is authentically black like you just know when a show or a film is made by black people because it's in the very small things um the small phrases that people say And you're like, oh, that sounds like something my mom would say. And it's because that's something that black moms say. So I really highly suggest that you give Reasonable Doubt a try on Hulu. Um, I loved it. I told my best friend to watch it. She's in love with it now, her and her boyfriend. So that says a lot because she's like really iffy about shows. So if you're looking for something new, check out Reasonable Doubt on Hulu. Secondly, 
last Wednesday at the time I'm recording this podcast episode, Solange Knowles, we all know baby Solange, she became the first black woman and the third woman ever, like third woman period in history, to write an original score for the New York City Ballet. She made some posts on her Instagram, which were very heartwarming with her friends and also with Mama Tina and Beyonce. Um, And it was just, it's amazing to see that because I remember when Solange, first of all, I remember when Solange was like, I'm talking like I'm older than I am, but I remember being little and seeing like Solange, you know, hanging with Destiny's Child. I remember her in the Soldier video. Um, I remember when she got in her acting bag and she did bring it on. So just to see her growth, and then I remember her putting out her music. I was in love with her song, Losing You, which it had its 10-year anniversary, I think, yesterday at the time I'm recording this. It's crazy. It doesn't feel like 10 years. But, you know, I remember when she hopped into her music bag. And just to see her her trajectory over the years, it's been a blessing to be able to witness. So congratulations are in order to Solange for that amazing feat. And that's all I have for this week's update. So let's have a break for our sponsor and then head into our topic of the day. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now, I have told you all before about one of the towns that I basically grew up in. It is where my dad's side of the family lives um, and has been for decades at this point. And I say basically grew up in because when I was coming up, when I was growing up, um, we would go there every single weekend to see my family. Maybe not every single weekend, but it felt like every weekend. If there were... Four weekends in the month, we were there at least three, you know. So I would go from Tallahassee, my hometown, and then the weekend it was just a given that we would be going to my dad's town where he grew up over the weekend. Um, and it's a very small town. Like, it's about 45 minutes away from where I lived in Tallahassee. It's one of those places where, you know, when people say everybody knows everybody, on a TV show or like a film and they're like, oh yeah, everybody knows everybody. It's like that. That's the kind of town we're talking about. Like literally everybody knows 
everybody. And even if you don't know a person personally, you at least know their cousin or their auntie or their uncle, somebody. You know somebody in that person's family. Um, And so in this town, I would always be on one side of the town. So much so that it wasn't until I was like 15, 16, 17 that I realized there was a completely different side of town. Like I thought the town... The little city was as big as where I would go. I didn't know that there was more to this city, right? And just for a little context and backstory, in this town, they had a segregated cemetery that wasn't integrated until maybe 30 years ago. Maybe 30 years ago. And also for more context, when I was little, there was a hotel on the main strip. So when you would drive through town, it's like a straight shot, like a highway that goes straight through the town and leads you into the next town. And so on this highway, there was a hotel that people would go, they would swim. And the owner of the hotel didn't want black people in the pool. And he filled it with cement. He filled the pool with cement. Mind you, this was not even 15 years ago. Like, I remember vividly swimming in that pool myself and having family reunions there and people being excited to go to the pool. Like, this was not that long ago. We aren't talking about, like, the 50s, 60s here. This was, like, a smooth 2008, 2007, when he filled this pool because he did not want black people swimming in it. And I give you that background because you have to know what type of people we're dealing with here and also the historical context of what we're going to be talking about in this episode. So like I was saying, it wasn't until like I was maybe 16, maybe, um, that one day we were riding and we went across these train tracks and we just kept driving and I'm like looking at these different buildings like immediately across the train tracks and I'm thinking to myself um where are we going (laughs) like what city is this uh why have I never seen this before because it's also one of those cities where it bleeds into another town like you have you're boom 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 you're in like three different cities at once and so I'm thinking to myself why have I never seen this part before Well, we were in the same city, but we had just crossed to the other side of the tracks. And if you're from the South, you've probably heard sayings like, oh, that person is from the wrong side of the tracks or over there across the tracks. And typically that saying is used to mean a poor or less prestigious part of town. And that's not me saying it. That's kind of where it derives from. You can Google it yourself if you want confirmation. That is what that saying typically means. That was one instance where I felt that. But another version of this happened when I was in college. And honestly, even younger, I went to FAMU, as you all know. And at the time I'm recording this podcast, it is October 3rd. So I have to give a very happy birthday to my alma mater, Florida Agriculture and Mechanical University. The school's birthday is October 3rd. So happy birthday, FAMU. But for college, as you all know, I went to FAMU. And before college, I went to FAMU's Developmental Research School. They had a K through 12 school, so I literally went there from kindergarten to 12th grade. I never left and went to another school. I was there my entire life. 
Um, but where FAMU is situated, where FAMU is located, uh, the school that they had for students, young students, was right on FAMU's campus. They were literally there together. And it sits on a very large hill, but at the bottom of the hill is a train track. And on the other side of that train track, so FAMU's on one side, and then on the opposite side of that train track is Florida State University, which is a predominantly white institution, um, which I attended for grad school. That school is also my alma mater. But I remember when I was in high school, there was a group of people who came over to visit our school. And I think they were in like, they were like science students at Florida State. Um, and they came over to FAMU High to give, you know, like recruitment kind of thing. And I remember one of the teachers, our teachers had no filter. Anyway, one of the teachers was like, oh, you guys came across the tracks for once, huh? Like, you know, as a joke, not, you know. Nothing bad. You know how we are sometimes. And they meant it jokingly, but ever since then, I've always wondered two things. One, where did that phrase come from, the other side of the tracks or across the tracks? And two, how were railroad systems used to separate black communities from white communities? Hence this episode. This episode has been a long time coming. Um, I've had this on my Blacktober list for maybe two years now, and I just never touched it because I had other things I wanted to discuss more. And I'm going to be referencing a few articles and a few journals in this episode, which will all be linked in the description of this podcast. If you click the description of the podcast, you'll be able to find those links if you want to read more yourself, because there is so much to this. And I just don't have the time. (laughs) Like, if I included every single thing, this episode would be about four hours. And we're not going to do that. We're just going to do an over over view of the historical context of the railroad and highway systems and how they affected black communities. But if you want to read more, again, those links will be in the description box. Now, One of the articles is from the Washington Post. It's titled, How Railroads, Highways, and Other Man-Made Lines Racially Divide America's Cities. And it's written by Emily Badger and Darla Cameron. And it says this, Like many metaphors, the other side of the tracks was originally a literal epithet. Blacks were often historically restricted to neighborhoods separated from whites by railroads, turning the tracks into iron barriers of race and class. In many cities, these dividing lines persist to this day a reflection of decades of discriminatory policies and racism, but also the power of infrastructure itself to segregate. Look at racial maps of many American cities and stark boundaries between neighboring black and white communities frequently denote a impassable railroad or highway or a historically uncrossable avenue. Infrastructure has long played this role, reinforcing unspoken divides, walling off communities, containing their expansion, physically isolating them from schools or parks or neighborhoods nearby. Research, in fact, suggests that American cities that were subdivided by railroads in the 19th century into physically discrete neighborhoods became much more segregated decades later following the Great Migration of Blacks out of the rural South. You can see echoes of this pattern in Pittsburgh today. Segregation, in fact, has been built into the physical environment of many American cities, making it that much harder to undo. 
A century after many of these railroads were built, the pattern was repeated in a modern form through the construction of even more imposing highways, many of which both destroyed and separated minority neighborhoods. In Buffalo, New York, that divide runs along Main Street. In St. Louis, it was historically divided by a four-lane boulevard known as Del Mar Divide, whose significance lingers in the city today. In Detroit, the infamous 8-mile road is also a municipal dividing line between Detroit and its northern suburbs. The same can be seen in Shreveport, Louisiana, Tampa, Milwaukee, and more. In Washington, D.C., the Anacostia, forgive me if I mispronounced it, river has long served to isolate and separate black communities on the east side of town. But another element of the environment created by government became over the years a de facto buffer between white and non-white communities. And that's what leads us into highways. There's a saying that goes, wherever there is a highway, there was once a black community. In an NPR article titled A Brief History of How Racism Shaped Interstate Highways, it said, Planners of the interstate highway system, which began to take shape after the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956, routed some highways directly and sometimes purposefully through black and brown communities. In some instances, the government took homes by eminent domain. And eminent domain, if you don't know, refers just to the power of the government to take private property and convert it for public use. Um, And the Fifth Amendment provides the government may only exercise this power if they provide just compensation for the property owners. But y'all know how that go. So I'll just leave that at that. And so the article goes on to say the highways were being built just as courts. So courts around the United States um, were striking down traditional tools of racial segregation. So, for example, courts were striking down the use of racial zoning to keep black people in certain communities and white people in other communities. And so as that's happening, the highway development popped up at a time when the idea Um, the possibility of integration in housing was on the horizon. And so very intentionally, highways were sometimes built right on the formal boundary lines that we saw used during racial zoning. Sometimes community members even asked the highway builders to create a barrier between their community and the oncoming of the black community. In her paper, White Men's Roads Through Black Men's Homes, Advancing Racial Equity Through Highway Reconstruction, Deborah Archer wrote, The passage of the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956, popularly known as the National Interstate and Defense Highways Act or the Interstate Highway Act, buoyed both highway construction and the destruction of black communities, often under the guise of slum removal, quote, slum removal, Federal and state officials purposefully targeted black communities to make way for massive highway projects. In states around the country, highways disproportionately displaced black households and cut the heart and soul out of thriving black communities as homes, churches, schools, and businesses were destroyed. In some cases, entire black communities were leveled. In St. Paul, Minnesota, the construction of Interstate 94 displaced one-seventh of the city's black residents. As one observer noted, very few blacks lived in Minnesota, but the road builders found them. 
Similarly, in Pittsburgh, a black community known as the Hill District was devastated in order to build Interstate 579. When Interstate 579 opened to traffic, it had effectively cut off the Hill District from Pittsburgh's thriving downtown area and displaced thousands of black residents. The population of the Hill District dropped from approximately 54,000 in 1950 to approximately 9,500 in 2015. Now, you do the math on that. More than 400 businesses were lost when this happened. Quote, when you displace that many people, you essentially damn that community. So it should be no surprise that today, approximately 40% of the Hills District's residents live below the poverty line. In many communities, the highway spared black homes but became a permanent racial barrier between white and black neighborhoods, further entrenching racial segregation and walling off economic opportunity. This was often accomplished at the request of white residents who feared integration. In Orlando, Florida, my home state, Interstate 4 was built to provide a barrier separating black residents on the west side of town from white residents on the central business district on the east side of town. Same can be found in Los Angeles, California. The highway system was designed to serve the dual purpose, two purposes, of segregation and also isolation. The Los Angeles freeway created a barrier to the blight of downtown and allowed those coming from Pasadena or other eastern suburbs to bypass it. Thus, highways in Los Angeles worked to hide the brutal violence of racial segregation and also helped to maintain it. Highways were built through and around black communities to physically entrench racial inequality and protect white spaces and privilege. The physical boundaries they created would become permanent tools of white supremacy, boundaries that could withstand the evolution of civil rights laws rather than be forced to comply with the law. The highways were now the law. So where do we go from here? I know we can't like go and dig up all the railroad systems, right? And we can't like knock down all of the highways ourselves. We can't do that. But what can we do now that we know that these systems, these railroad tracks, and think about the cities that you live in, the towns that you live in or the towns that you frequented. Uh, Think about where your family lives, especially if you live um, where there's a very small area and there's a stark contrast in the black residents and the white residents. Think about the railroad tracks there. Think about the highways that pass through. Because we can't dig them up or remove them or knock down all the highways. Okay, so how can we help? I, for one, am a strong proponent um, of going into those communities yourself to make change. I think it's almost useless to just talk about change all the time and insist there be change if you aren't willing to do any of the actual work yourself. And we are only people, so we can't do everything ourselves. But find something that you can do to go into those neighborhoods, to go into those communities that have been historically cut off via highways, um, via railroad systems, where, it yes, segregation was, quote-unquote, done or abolished, gotten rid of. But those highways and those railroad systems were a way to legally make it again, to segregate those areas again, to keep those black people on their side 
and to keep them from coming to the other side. So find some community centers, find some groups that go into those neighborhoods, that go into those communities and assist them. Do some food drives, do some back to school drives, do some Christmas drives, do some cookouts. I did a cookout, um, two, it was pre COVID, um, and COVID just like really, I don't want to say it messed up a lot of things, but it has forced me to be able to rethink how I give back. Um, so we'll we'll do another cookout next year now that I'm thinking about it. But go do some cookouts. Go go give back. And also, I know people say this all the time, but they say it because it's true. We have to vote for people who actually understand the plight of those communities and genuinely want to create programs that assist in leveling the playing field and providing more access and opportunity to those communities and to those people. For example, um, there is a group where I'm from who very intentionally goes into the community where I was brought up, where I went to school all my life, um, and they created a program there where people can come, small business owners can come, or people who are thinking about creating a small business, and it's predominantly black. It's Now that I think about it, everyone who attends that workshop the last time I went was a black person from that community. And that program is just to assist them in getting their business off the ground. Um, so think about ways that you can assist with that. Think about putting people in offices who are from that community and who understand that community. Because it's one thing for people to run for office and say they want to help and they believe in this and they believe in that. But if they didn't grow up in that, it's sometimes hard for people to really understand if you aren't from that community. Also, educate others on this and give them the history. Send this podcast to a coworker. Send it to your auntie, your cousin, them, because maybe they don't know how the railroad system and the highway systems were used to create racial lines and racial walls between black and white communities. And find out where you can make a difference personally, how you can personally go into those communities and make a difference for the people that live there. So the next time that you are riding through your city or visiting another town, if you happen to cross a train track or drive through a highway that runs through a community, think about how the systems of the 19th century and also the very recent one inflict racial segregation still today. I'll see you guys next week in a brand new episode of the Carefree and Black Diaries, Blacktober edition. Stay black and carefree. Bye, guys.